Registration is now live for the 15th International Conference on World War II at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. This premier event brings together the best and brightest scholars, authors, historians, and witnesses to history from around the globe to discuss key battles, personalities, strategies, issues, and controversies of the war that changed the world. This year features a day-long pre-conference symposium, Resistance, Life Under Occupation, as well as two days of sessions exploring an array of topics, including the World War II's battle blunders, the old breed, K Company, and Eugene Sledge, Asia Aflame, Women at War, Resistance, and featuring James Holland, host of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, Richard Overy, and Ben McIntyre, and many, many more. The conference will be held November 17th to November 19th on the museum's New Orleans campus and live streamed on the museum's website. Tickets for the in-person conference are on sale now. For more information, visit WW2, that's WW, the number two, not spelled out, but the number two, conference.com. Once again, visit www2conference.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Hey guys, fall is almost here, and that means it's time for some fantastic new products from our friends over at Fable Beard Company. They've been releasing their fall lineup lately, and there's some great new products. One of the new ones this year is the Beard Master. This fun one features aged leather and cursed apple trees as the scent profile. <laughs> Can't get much more fun than that. Another great one, this one's back from last year and it's my favorite from last year, and that's the Doll Maker. It has a scent profile of warm butterscotch, buttered rum, and candy corn. These are just two of the new great fall scents you'll find over at fablebeardco.com. Now, of course, they come in a wide range of different products that are perfect for beards and hair. They have beard oil and butter, but also a wash and a conditioner. And as I know I've said before, my wife loves the conditioner for her hair, and we use the wash for our dogs. Their fur has never been softer. Head over to fablebeardco.com and be sure to use coupon code SEAN15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off each and every single order when you use Sean, S-H-A-W-N, 15. Okay, let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 27, Guadalcanal Campaign, Part 3. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen closely. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now, I just want to mention a few things before we get started. First, don't forget to check out the website. I've placed some maps over there, which I think will help out with some of these battles. Also, while you're there, check out the list of sources I used to create the season. Now, speaking of those sources, they're hyperlinked to Amazon. So, if you would like to help out the show, next time you're shopping on Amazon, just enter it via one of those links. We'll get a kickback from them, and it costs you nothing extra. Now, speaking of the show... Don't for helping out the show, I should say. Don't forget about our Patreon. 
We have a ton of stuff over there, including the already finished show, 1983, the year the world almost ended. All episodes are available, and there is so much more, including Quagmire, the story of American involvement in the Middle East, and our newest show on Colonial America. You can access all of this content just for $10 a month. And finally, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I've been working at being more active on Instagram, so give the show a follow and share it with your friends and family. Just search American History Podcast and we'll come up. You can also drop me an email if you think I've made a mistake or you have some constructive criticism. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. All right, so last time we took a deep dive into the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. It was undoubtedly an American victory. Whether you looked at it from the tactical perspective or a strategic point, you slice it this way, dice it that way, it doesn't matter. The Americans won. Now, true, the long-term results weren't massive, but it did reduce, once again, the numbers of trained Japanese naval aviators. The United States, in the meantime, only lost seven air crew in the battle. Enterprise made her way to Pearl Harbor for extensive repairs, and amazingly, she was back at sea on October 24th just in time for another battle. This time, the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands and a rematch with Shokaku and Zuikaku. But that rematch, we'll have to wait for another episode. We're not going to get into that one yet. Um, But anyways, let's head back to that far-flung set of islands in the Pacific. To do so, we have the Song of the Week. This week, we've got Sing 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 by Benny Goodman. We'll see you in a few minutes.
Okay, so as we said a moment ago, uh, last time we focused on the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. And once again, the Japanese had suffered a defeat. However, they were far from done, and the end of the war was still a long way off. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about World War II are the interesting code names and the slang terms used for different things. One such term was Tokyo Express. This name was used by Allied forces when talking about how the Japanese Navy delivered troops and equipment at night to various strongholds in and around New Guinea, as well as the Solomons. At one point, the Allies used the term the Cactus Express, as Guadalcanal was codenamed Cactus. However, they quickly realized this wasn't the smartest move, and in order to preserve operational security for that word, they switched the phrase over to Tokyo Express. Now, using the Tokyo Express, Admiral Sukahara, the commanding officer of the Southeast Area Force, slowly built up Japanese strength on that island. Now, the Japanese used the term rat when it came to the nighttime resupply of Guadalcanal. Thus, on August 27th, Sukahara directed Admiral Tanaka to begin the first rat operation. Tanaka immediately instructed his headquarters to place about 400 troops and supplies for three times as many men on three different destroyers. Um, now, the ships put out to sea at 0500 on August 28th, and they uh, would have arrived at least at 2100 that same day. However, Tanaka, who was by this point at home, because it was 0500 in the morning, received an order from 8th Fleet, calling for him to postpone the landing until the next evening. As you can probably imagine, his patience was starting to wear thin. For the third time since he had taken over this command, he had received conflicting orders from Tanaka and Admiral Mikawa. This confusion was not helping the Japanese cause in the area. Now, you're probably wondering what's going on with them. Well, what was going on was that Sukahara and Mikawa were operating from rival headquarters. Each admiral drew up his own plans based on intelligence. What mattered for those like Tanaka was that confusion was the result of this conflict. Instead of concentrating on fighting the Americans, the higher-ups were more worried about their own little fiefdoms. Now, a result of this conflict and confusion was the unnecessary loss of life. Due to a fuel shortage, three destroyers headed to Guadalcanal. The constant back-and-forth, yes-no, um, yes-no yes, no situation meant they were in range of Henderson Field in broad daylight. One destroyer was sunk, one left dead in the water, and the third was severely damaged but able to limp home. Tanaka was consumed with rage. A midnight conference was called to discuss this disaster. At this point, Captain Murakami radioed to inform his superiors that he had turned back. Tanaka was speechless. He could order the captain to head back and drop his men off at Guadalcanal, but doing so now meant they were easy prey for the Americans flying out of Henderson Field. Needless to say, the admiral, who took a figurative lashing at the hands of his superiors, ultimately for their own failures, especially Admiral Mikawa, to get it through their heads that daytime landings in the face of American air superiority were akin to suicide, passed it on with interest to Captain Murakami. Now, we could go on with the blow-by-blow, blow, but we'd be, taking, uh, we'd be talking for at least 10 episodes on this, and I'm trying to not do that, believe it or not. Suffice it to say that the Japanese never get their act together, and by the time the Tokyo Express um, had stopped running 15 months later, the entire thing was a loss. They had lost ships they could not replace, and they had failed in their attempt to push the Americans 
off the islands. Now, when it comes to war, there are always tales of heroism, but there are also tales of bureaucratic incompetence, as we've just seen. And here's another one of those. In the spring of 1942, the Army Air Corps 67th Fighter Squadron was sent to New Caledonia via ship. Now, as you should know, Army, or what is now the Air Force airplanes, do not land and take off from ships. Except in the instance of the Doolittle Raid, they never have, and they never will. So their planes had to be sent along with them, but in crates. When they arrived, the members of the unit, specifically the mechanics who had put them together, or who had to put them together, found a plane they did not recognize. This plane was the P-400, a version of the early models of the P-39 meant for export to the UK. Now, none of the unit's mechanics had ever worked on this plane before, and there were no instructions for assembly in the crates. Shocking, I know, right? Well, they did the best they could, and they assembled them anyway. Then the pilots had to learn how to fly them, which they did. Then we get to August 22nd, and five of the planes, led by Captain Dale Brannan, guided by a flying fortress, made the trip across 640 miles of water from Espirito Santo to Henderson Field. The Cactus Air Force, already composed of units from the Marines and now flying from the USS Enterprise, um, temporarily there, if you remember, um, became a joint command. Sadly, the Army showed up at the wrong time. These new planes, lacking the proper oxygen system, were only able to fly at levels under 12,000 feet. This was far below what the Japanese bombers and fighters were flying at, so they were at a major disadvantage. Be that as it may, the powers that be in Washington insisted the plane was perfect for the Pacific, of course. The Army General on Espirito Santo, General Harmon, wrote tons of letters back home, pleading for the newer, faster, and longer-ranged P-38. But General Arnold refused. Typical of military bureaucracy and the military in general, it was the troops on the ground, or in this case, in the air, who would suffer for bureaucratic stubbornness or stupidity. Take your pick on the adjective that you prefer. And while the letters were flying back and forth, the P-400 was quickly shot out of the skies above the Solomon Islands. Within six days, only three of the original 14 were still operational. General Vandegrift was forced to withdraw them from aerial combat and assign their pilots to, pilots to bombing and strafing the Japanese just outside of the Marines' perimeter. In this role, it actually showed itself to be more than useful. It was the scourge of Japanese ground forces, thanks to its nose cannon, its light and heavy machine guns, and the fact that it could carry a 500-pound bomb. The plane was made even more of a menace when the Americans equipped it with depth charges. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw that. Um, Robert Leckie tells us these were dropped on enemy-held ravines, and the concussions were dreadful, he says. Quote, they literally blew the Japanese out of their shoes, end quote. However, they were loose, useless against the daily onslaught being flung against the Americans by the Japanese based on Rabaul. However, by this point, the Americans had learned their lesson, and within only a week, the Marines destroyed the legend of the Invincible Zero. The kill ratio was about 7 to 1 in favor of the Americans. Japanese pilots, who had seen themselves as all-conquering masters of the sky, were sent to their deaths, crashing into jungles or plummeting into the sea. Indeed, out of the 80 fighter pilots who came to the South Pacific um, with Commander Nakajima, only Nakajima himself and the peerless Nishizawa, 
who lived only to perish in the Philippines, along with six others, would survive the onslaught by the stubby American fighters. Now, part of the reason for the mismatch was a combination of the ruggedness of the Grumman Wildcat, but also the teamwork of the American pilots. They soon realized that alone, they were no match for the Japanese heroes. However, flying wing to wing and working in tandem, they could take on five enemy fighters. Now, in a way, reading this reminds me of the film Top Gun. Yes, I know, but hear me out. Um, In the original, one of the tactics the naval aviators are drilled on is the idea of, quote, you never leave your wingman, end quote. I was not a fighter pilot in my days in the Navy, but I do wonder if that is a tactic that carried over from World War II. For these pilots, life on Guadalcanal was far from ideal. Like the Marine infantry troops they shared the island with, home was a cot and a tent, pitched in the mud. Meals were a delightful mix of dehydrated potatoes and rice, along with sodden Vienna sausages spooned out of mess gear that you borrowed from the troops. Home was also the center of the Japanese bomber's bullseye, and it was the number one target of the Tokyo Express. When the island was not being drenched by tropical rains, home turned into a sun-blasted desert of black dust. By August 31st, General Vandegrift had 86 pilots under his command, three from the Army, ten who were Navy, and the rest were Marines. This was the Cactus Air Force. In just 10 days, they had taken out 21 enemy bombers and 39 fighters, as well as successfully blocking Admiral Tanaka's attempts to reinforce Japanese troops in the canal. However, be that as it may, the Japanese were now reinforcing their positions more heavily than the Americans were. While he got 31 new planes on August 30th, his counterpart on Rabaul got 58. They were also building up forces on his perimeter. The Japanese were fresh, while his Marines had already become emaciated thanks to their rationing of food. Further, the Americans were dealing with an outbreak of dysentery, as well as malaria. Now as it stood, the enemy buildup would continue to grow. The Navy seemed unable or unwilling to do what it took to stop the Tokyo Express. Vandegrift knew that the only thing to do was to hit the ships before it got dark. But that was nigh on impossible. His fighters and bombers had limited range. What he needed was long-range planes. Now this was his thinking, and it was seconded by Vice Admiral John S. McCain, who visited Henderson Field on August 31st. That night, while McCain was still on the island, a Japanese cruiser came in close to land and shelled the airfield. In the morning, bombers came in and hit the Americans again. McCain, squinting his small eyes, told the general, quote, By God, Vandegrift, this is your war and you're sure welcome to it. But when I go back tomorrow, I'm going to try to get you what you need for your air force out here, end quote. Now, the wiry little admiral was a man of his word. When he got back to Espirito Santo, he fired off dispatches to Robert Gormley, uh, General MacArthur, Admiral Nimitz, and Admiral Keane. Now, in it, he stated that, quote, two full squadrons of lightnings or wildcats, in addition to present strength, should be put into Guadalcanal at once, with replacements in training to the south. The situation admits of no delay, whatever. With substantially, the reinforcements request Guadalcanal, can be a sinkhole for enemy air power and can be consolidated, expanded, and exploited to enemies' mortal hurt. The reverse is true if we lose Guadalcanal. If the reinforcements request is not made available, Guadalcanal cannot be supplied 
and hence cannot be held, end quote. The reports McCain sent disturbed the Undersecretary of the Navy, James V. Forrestal, who at this time was visiting with Admiral Gormley in New Caledonia. Upon his return to Washington, D.C., he informed the Joint Chiefs of the need of the Cactus Air Force. In the meantime, Gormley asked MacArthur if he could send some of his lightning fighters. MacArthur replied he needed them for the defense of New Guinea and Australia, which I should add was true. MacArthur also replied that perhaps the Admiral could lend them one or two of his four aircraft carriers. The Admiral said that they were needed to keep the sea lanes to Australia open, which was also true. Besides, he no longer had four. He only had three. The Saratoga, an old ship that her crew called the Sarah Maru, was about 260 miles off to the southeast of Guadalcanal. On August 31st, around breakfast time, uh, right around the time that breakfast was being served, and the screening ships were moving around the carrier, all of this was being observed excitedly by a Japanese officer on board the I-26, a submarine just outside of the picket ships. Sometime around 0745, six long-lance torpedoes were fired at the Americans. About a minute later, the periscope was seen by the USS McDonough, and she hoisted the torpedo warning. Then she moved in to attack, dropping depth charges, which were not set for any depth and thus useless, and the ship scraped against the side of the diving Japanese submarine. At the same time, on board the Saratoga, uh, Captain DeWitt Ramsey swung his rudder hard and rang up full speed ahead. The old ship slowly, ponderously turned into the torpedo's wake, but it was too late. Shortly afterwards, one of the torpedoes smashed into her starboard side, just abreast of the island. The ship was wounded, but it was not life-threatening. She would need a tow, but she was okay. The problem, of course, was that now she was out of the fight, needing three months of repairs. The next day, General Vandegrift learned of her loss. He was also informed of General Kawaguchi's landing to the east the previous night. Crisis followed crisis. He ordered the raiders and the paratroopers in Tulagi, led by Colonel Ederson, to move to Guadalcanal. Now on the evening of September 3rd, a message arrived at the headquarters of the Cactus Air Force. A transport was arriving later that night, and the airfield would have to be illuminated. Brigadier General Roy Geiger had come up from the New Hebrides to take command of the Cactus Command. He brought with him his chief of staff, Colonel Lewis Woods, as well as his intelligence officer, Lieutenant Colonel John Munn. They were some of the most experienced aviators in the Marine Corps. Now, the new commander and his men weren't the only arrivals. The 6th Naval Construction Battalion, the CBs, arrived on September 1st. Now, the CBs, if I didn't mention it before, were experienced craftsmen and thus older than the average Marine. Their average age was 35, and many of them were veterans of World War I. Robert Leckie tells a humorous story about the first encounter between the CBs and the Marines, many of whom thought they were being reinforced by their dads. Quote, what the hell, Pop? They run out of men back home, end quote. Another one was, quote, hang on to your false teeth, granddad. The Japs are dropping sandwiches, end quote. Now the CBs took it all in stride until someone went too far and asked, quote, what in the hell you old geezers going to do here? The response was, quote, I'll tell you what, your mother's mistakes, we're going to protect Marines, end quote. Of course, that wasn't quite true, but it laid the groundwork for the good-natured ribbing that would follow, 
and it helped develop a camaraderie between the two groups. Now, this was needed as the Marines and the Seabees had to work together in the Pacific War. They were there, truth be told, to effect repairs on the airstrip after enemy raids, and repairs were vital. Before the Japanese arrived, the planes would take off so they weren't hit while still on the ground. But once the raid was over, they had to come back. A damaged airstrip would not do. The CBs quickly learned just how much damage one 500-pound bomb could do. They then figured out how much Marston steel matting was needed and placed that much as well as the sand and the gravel needed to repair a hole at strategic points. Out of sight, of course. Compressors and pneumatic hammers used to fill and pack the holes were placed in readiness. They then created assembly lines to pay and lay the matting. As soon as the bombers departed, they quickly made their way to the airstrip. While trucks loaded with supplies moved in from the coconut groves, twisted matting was torn out from the bomb holes. Fill was then poured in and men with compressors moved in to pack it. New matting was then laid, pressed, and linked to the undamaged airstrips and in less than 40 minutes, the repair was completed. So what is all of this leading to, I hear you ask? We have set the stage for the Battle of Edson's Ridge, which we'll cover in the next episode, coming out in just a couple of weeks. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to episode 27 of season 4, World War II in the Pacific, and we'll see y'all next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Shut it off, Robert. Oh, 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 oh